26, verses 1 through 5. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Father, we ask that you would use these words as we read them today, Father, as we strive to understand them, that we would, as your people, fall in love with you, that we would know you deeper, more intimately. That, Father, we would walk away from this place glorifying you and your power and your strength as we see how you worked in David and through David, as we see how David reacted. And, Father, the faith that we can have in you if we, too, Father, have the same faith as him. And so, Father, we glorify you. And may you use this time in a mighty way for your glory in your name. Amen. Well, we're going to read the whole chapter all the way through, right at the beginning, rather than taking it a section at a time. Um, Before I do that, one really quick um, note of cleanup. Last week, okay, maybe I should start, I'll start from the beginning. On Monday morning, I was sitting down and having a coffee. I was all by myself in the darkness of my house, and it suddenly hit me that I said that Nabal was not an Israelite. Anybody else catch that? Yeah, a few of you did. A few of you did. Okay, so Nabal from last week was a godless man. He's a worthless man. We'll talk a little bit about that today again. But he's a Calebite. And for some reason, all week long, my brain saw Caleb, red Calebite, and my brain said Esauite. And Esau is not of the line of Jacob, right? I mean, they're brothers, but he's not Israel. Okay, so I'm here to correct myself. Nabal wasn't Israelite. He was a worthless Israelite. Okay, so that's my one disclaimer. So everybody was wondering what, and thank you for the grace and no emails. That's Monday night Bible study. I did bring it up and said, I noticed this. and They were gracious too. They said, it wasn't anything heretical. It's totally fine. It's all right. But I felt the need to actually have to say something to you guys. Um, so, and it was God pointing it out to me. And we, I mean, it was literally eating, drinking coffee and going, oh no, did I really just say that? So anyway, let's read through the rest of the chapter. First Samuel chapter 26, starting in verse 6, going all the way to the end. Then David said to Ahimelech, the Hittite, and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will go down to meet with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the, to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. 
Then said Abishai to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head and they went away. No man knew it, saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die because you have not kept watch over your lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is, it your voice, my, is, it, is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. And then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. When you read an entire chapter of Scripture, it is guaranteed that you're going to come across Many, many things, many principles, many things to follow, many questions, you know, this or that, or why did this happen? Why did Saul say this? Or why did David say this? And, and those are all really good questions, but we don't have time to go through every single one of them. <laughs> we just don't. We don't have the time to do it in the short time that we have each and every Sunday morning. And my desire, my hope is that this just whets your appetite to dig deeper into the Word of God, to ask those questions. And we're going to try to 
focus. We're, we're going to spend really focused time on what, what is happening here. This is very similar to chapter 24. If you remember 24 and the, the incident in the cave, it's, it's almost, I want to say word for word, but it's pretty close, the exact same type of incident. It's not the same incident, just told differently. It is a different incident, but it happens very, very much the same. Why? Why is that happening? What is, what is God trying to get across by, by saying these two stories right between the story about Nabal, Abigail, and David? Well, we're going to focus specifically on four things. We're going to focus on what it means that God is providential, what it means to be foolish, what it means to be righteous, what it means to be faithful, and how they all relate. You see how we don't have time, right? Now, I have recently realized the importance of defining terms. There are a lot of, a lot of miscommun- miscommunication and misunderstanding happens when two people are using the same term, but they mean it differently. They have different definitions. Uh, a dictionary is useful, and a thesaurus, I'll even throw that in there for you English, English majors. But it, for the Christian, we cannot rely solely on the dictionary. If you pull a dictionary out from the 1400s, if there were any, and a dictionary today, you might have the same word that has a completely different meaning in today's society. But when it comes to the Bible, the Bible does not change. The definitions, the understanding of these words does not change. And so as Christians, we cannot rely solely on the definition found in the dictionary. Again, it's helpful. But instead, our understanding of this world, including how we use and define terms, is to be based upon how God uses and defines those terms. We cannot say, hmm, I don't like that term, God. I'm going to change it to something else. We do not have that authority. We are not God, and this is God's word. And so if we struggle, I've said this before, if we struggle with what the Bible says, the Bible's not the problem. We are. And we don't change what the Bible says to match what we think because, you know, tomorrow, I'll tell you, I'm going to think something differently. But the Bible never changes. And so we need to change to what the Bible says, not change the Bible to what we say. So these terms that I had mentioned, what are God's providences? Uh, what, is, what are God's providence and judgments? How does God define foolish, righteous, and faithful? And so my prayer for us this morning is that this short word study, and it will be a very short word study, Again, well, it's only going to whet your appetite or whet our appetite to dig deeper into the passage, dig deeper into the chapter. What is God really wanting to say? What does his word teach us? What does it show us? Looking at the references and what, that, that are given to us, and go, how, does, how does that help us to understand this better? God's word is rich. It is deep. It is life-changing. And this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us. And so when we insert ourselves into the Bible and our own definitions, we are not getting an understanding of who God is, but instead who we want God to be. We are making Him us, rather than being transformed and changed 
to think as he thinks. And so, doing that as his children, by studying his word, digging into this, maybe hearing some hard things, we can not only know God more intimately through his word and understanding it, but then it helps us as his children to obediently live by what he desires. Two very difficult things, and yet it's possible with the word of God. So, the Lord's providence and judgments. Providence is a really fancy word. Providence is a characteristic of God. That means it's who he is. It's part of who he is as God, and that characteristic impacts our understanding of God. It has to. We worship a God who is actively at work within the history of humanity. That's what providence means. He is at work on a big scale with the rotation of the earth and the solar system where the stars in the sky are placed, the comings and goings of the seasons, history itself, which kingdom falls, which one rises up. But he's also at work in our daily commute, when I go to the grocery store, how my week is going to look. His hand is actively at work making things work out to the way that he desires. So God's providence means that his hand is actively at work throughout the history of all of humanity, both on the small scale and the large. And so we can see things that happen in history, such as the war in Ukraine. It doesn't make it right, but it doesn't mean that God is suddenly shocked. I didn't know Putin was going to do this. God was actively at work in ways that we have no idea to use Putin and Ukraine and Russia and the soldiers and the people and the refugees and everything down to the most minute detail to make his will happen. We do not worship a God who sits on the sidelines hoping that all things are going to work out. No, that is not the God that we worship. He is actively working in all things for good, for His glory. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Stop. What we like to then add, which is right, because that's the rest of the passage, for those who love God, right? For those who are, technically, for those who are called according to His purpose. So those who are the children of God, we like to say, God works all things for my good. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is God works all things for good, period. And whose good is that? It's his good. Now, as his children, when we trust the Lord, no matter what happens in our life, good or bad, and we believe he's providentially at work, we believe that he works all things for good, And it's his good, which means ultimately it's for my good. Because nothing gives me more pleasure than to see God's good happen. Right? Does that make sense? You guys are kind of staring at me a little bit. Does that that make sense? He works all things for good, comma, 
for those who are called according to his purpose, which means the world does not have all things work for good. Instead, they have to strive to make it work for good for them, and usually it fails. But our God is always, always working for his good. And so it is with the Lord's judgments. They are always right, they're always just, and because of them, the people of God rejoice. Psalm 97 Verses 8 and 9, Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. This is the God that we worship. His hand is at work, and his judgments are always right. He does not explain his judgments. He does not explain why Russia, I mean, we can guess and we, you know, read the news or whatever, but ultimately God has his will and his way through horrible things in life in ways that we could never imagine. David is in the middle of learning to trust the Lord's providence and judgments. He trusts that God would judge him rightly, and so he refuses to take Saul's life in the cave in chapter 24. But Nabal's insults and rejection of David reveal David's sinfulness. He gets angry. He seeks vengeance against Nabal. Instead of trusting in the providence of God and in the judgments of God, he tries to take matters into his own hands. And praise the Lord for Abigail, a discerning woman, who said, yeah, don't, don't, don't do this. You're going to regret it. In God's providential hand, by God's providential hand, David is once again faced with a choice between vengeance or trust. I mean, God put the entire army to sleep. What better option and chance does David have? If he kills Saul, his days of fleeing are over, but he will have taken matters into his own hands. If he allows Saul to live, his flight will continue, and only the Lord will know the day that it will end. And until the day Saul dies, David will not be a part of the people of Israel. Now, he's an Israelite. He's not a Calebite. He's not an Esauite. He's still a part, but he cannot worship with the people. He cannot go to the temple and worship God. His, he's been removed from his inheritance. That's what he means by that. I can't go back and worship God the way I should be worshiping him. Of course, they had the tabernacle then, not the temple, but... He can't do it. So if he just takes Saul's life, all of that ends. And after David reveals that he could have taken Saul's life in the cave, Saul confesses that David is more righteous than himself and that he has repaid David's good with evil. In chapter 26, though, Saul takes, a bit, takes it a bit further and he actually calls himself foolish, which you should see a connection here between chapters 25 and 26. This word use, is used to describe the worthless and godless man Nabal, who was killed by God for rejecting David as the true anointed king. And unwittingly, of course not unwittingly to the Lord, right? He's providentially at hand. He's sovereign over all things. Unwittingly, Saul is comparing himself to the man whose name means foolish. The same word is used in Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21. And in that passage, God is speaking judgments upon his people, 
Israel who had utterly rejected and turned away from him. Think Saul when you hear these words. This is where Saul is in his life. Jeremiah chapter 5, verses 21 and 23 through 23. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but not, cannot see, who have ears but hear not. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and gone away. It is a fool who does not fear the Lord. It is a fool who turns aside from the Creator to worship and follow created things. It is a fool who has a stubborn and rebellious heart against the Lord. Nabal was a fool. Saul was a fool. He not only sought to kill David to protect his own power and position, but he will soon seek out a palm reader to determine his future course of action. That's how far he has fallen. And so it is with anyone who does not fear the Lord, but instead seeks the quote-unquote truth everywhere but the one place in which it resides, in the Lord. In 1 Samuel 24, 13, David says to Saul, out of the wicked comes wickedness, or as we said last week, Apple trees produce apples. Saul is wicked, and hence he does wicked things. The same truth is given here in in chapter 26, but David takes it again a, a bit deeper and a bit more personal, and he makes it applicable actually to anyone who fears the Lord, which is beautiful. I love that as as a preacher when David basically hands it to you on a platter and says, this is for anybody who fears the Lord. He says in verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. He's contrasting Saul, who's a fool. So a fool is not righteous and a fool is not faithful. What is righteousness? What does it mean? Well, righteousness is doing what's right. But since you can't define, define a word by itself, right? Like love is love. I don't even know what that means. What right, or but what kind of right by what standard? To do what's right. Yeah, do what's right. Do what's right. What does that mean? Who determines what is right? Who determines what is righteous? Well, for the Christian, God is our standard of righteousness. We cannot lower the bar and say, well, righteousness is just doing the next right thing. That's that's the bar. No, God, His righteousness is up here. This is His standard. He always does what is right. He is unable to do any, anything evil or anything wrong. But we tend to determine or prefer our own standard of righteousness. And David's a prime example of this when he seeks out vengeance against Nabal. He took things into his own hands. In that moment, he sets himself as the standard for what is right. He doesn't say, Nabal has offended God. What he says is, he's offended me. It's all about him. But David learned from his mistake. 
which is why he's held to, held to such a high standard when people look back and even, even Christ in the time of Christ, they look back at David and that's, that's who we should be as followers of God because he, he always, at least as far as we know, repented and turned. He learns from his mistakes and then when he's confronted with another chance to end Saul's life by his own hands, he chose God as the standard. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. So in other words, either he's going to kill him like he did Nabal, or he's just going to grow old and die, or he's going to go into battle and he's going to get killed. It's out of my hands, and I'm not going to take his life into my hands. The Lord forbid that I should put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Faithfulness is a trustworthy response to God's revelation of himself as to what is right. Whether it was facing Goliath, whether it's eating the holy bread, avoiding Saul's spear, or even being offended by Nabal, David has learned that he is safe in the hands of a faithful God. And when faced with the temptation, again, to take Saul's life in the camp, David instead put his faith in the Lord, not in Abishai, not in himself. See, David has learned that God is worthy to be trusted because his judgments are always trustworthy. And his righteousness as the standard is always the place to aim. It's always the place to strive for. I can trust that God's got this in his hand. I could trust that he's providentially at work. I could trust that he's going to put me on the throne when he wants me to be on the throne. And if the only way to get that is to kill the anointed king, Saul, I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't be any better than all those other kings who strive to kill the people who came before them just so that they could have power and authority. So as Christians, what what does this mean for us? What is it? How are God's providence, our foolishness, our righteousness, and our faithfulness, how are they all connected? How are they all, how do we do what's right? How do we stay faithful? Well, one is that no matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on in our lives personally, whatever's going around, uh, along in the, in the world, we are called as God's people to be faithful to Him in all circumstances. And what does that mean? It means all circumstances. <laughs> There's not an exception. Well, you can stay faithful to me and you can do what's right according to what I think you should be doing, Mark, unless Luke offends you. And then you could throw him underneath the bus and stomp on his face. I really don't care because he deserves it. No. He says, be faithful to me. Be faithful to me no matter what. And that's hard, isn't it? It's hard. But nobody said the Christian life was easy. Nobody said being faithful to God was easy. Nobody said striving to be righteous is easy. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says, not that I'm speaking 
of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to, be, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Paul's speaking of contentment, but contentment in what? Contentment in God. He knows what it's like to have really bad things happen and really good things happen, but I'm going to be content in the Lord and not in my circumstance. Why? Because I can do anything with the power of God in me. I could survive a war. And if I die, I know where I'm going. I could survive somebody who hates me and despises me. Because I know that I'm redeemed and I'm a child of God. I got lots of problems, absolutely, but my identity is not in what others think of me, but in what God thinks of me. I can, I can be faithful to God whether I'm able to pay my bills or not, whether I have a loved one pass away or not. Because it's Him who strengthens me, not me. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus never said life was going to be easy. Jesus never said being a Christian was going to be the simplest thing you ever did in your entire life. You're, just, you're going to be saved, you get to sit back, drink a margarita, hang out in a hammock, and just enjoy life. I don't even like margaritas. Now he says, you're going to have some major problems because you love me, because you strive to live for me, because you want to do what is right, and because you are going to be faithful to me, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles. But take heart. Christ has overcome all of that. David faithfully trusted in the righteousness of God to deal with Saul on his own time and in his own way. David didn't need to step in to correct God's plan as if David knew better than God. We do that, don't we? Like, okay, God, I mean, have, have you really thought this one through? You know, like, really? Hmm. It would be a lot easier for me if this happened. And God's like, you, you flee? You don't know what you're talking about. You, you see what's right in front of you. I look at everything, and you need to trust me that even should this take your life, your life is in my hands, and you are mine. David trusted God, even with his own life on the line. And so it is for us as God's people. There's no circumstance that this world can throw at us as God's people that we cannot handle by God's power. See, that's a lie. When you say, there's nothing that I cannot handle. The world can, can throw everything at me, and there's nothing that I can't handle but you can't forget by the power of God because the reality is, is we fail so many times to handle the simplest things in life. There is nothing, there is nothing that we cannot handle with the power of God in us. I could be faithful, I could be obedient to God in any circumstance, trusting Him and trusting in His judgments and trusting Him to judge rightly, only through him who strengthens me. I cannot do it on my own because I can't see everything. David could not see everything. He didn't know when he was going to take the throne. He just knew it was going to happen. 
And then you get to the crux of the passage where he says, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. Now, the reward for righteousness and faithfulness is not money, it's not fame, it's not a good life, it's not comfort, it is not any earthly material possession, but heavenly, where moth and rust cannot destroy. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul is speaking to wives, husbands, and bondservants when he says these words, whatever you do, work heartily as if for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. In other words, this is simply what he's saying. You work for Christ because he's already given you an inheritance of eternal life. That is where your mindset is, not on the circumstances of life. And if people have wronged you, guess what? God is a, is a right judge and he's going to judge them. And he's not going to show partiality because they're wealthy or because they're smarter or because they look nicer than you or whatever it may be. He, he looks at the heart. You and I are not partial many times. Did I say that right? Okay. My brain suddenly... We're not, we're not, we're not. We judge by totally other standards than God, but God always judge, judges rightly. And the Lord rewards those who are righteous and faithful with the inheritance of eternal life. Just as with David, there's a strong connection between our belief and trust in God's providence and his judgments and our righteousness and faithfulness. So let's just, let's just put it this way. I strive as God's child to be righteous, to do right things according to the will and the desire of God as is revealed to me in his word. Why? Because I know that he is always faithful and he is always right. And so if he says this is the right thing to do, man, I better do it. And I can be faithful to him because he is always faithful. And he is always right. And his hand is always at work. He knows more than me. He understands more than me. And so I can believe I can have righteousness, live out righteousness, live out faithfulness, not because I'm awesome, but because God who is awesome is in me, empowering me to do that. Do you see the connection here? That is, we get so caught up in the world as God's people that we forget yeah, this is all going to burn up one day, guys. This world is not going to exist anymore, and God's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. Our God, the one that we stand here and worship, that we sing songs of praise to, that we pray to, that we hear his word, that we can hear what he's saying to us, that God is not a puny God. He's the only God who created all things. And no matter how difficult my life is or the circumstances that I find myself, God is not too small for them. And so I can live righteously. I can live faithfully and not live foolishly. If we do not believe that God is providentially at work in the history of humanity, that he's going to work all things for good, for his glory, which in the end will be for our own, own, own glory as his children, then we will not be righteous and faithful Instead, to him. Instead, we will be righteous and faithful to our own standards. We will live by our own definitions of what it means to be righteous and faithful 
And those standards will be far lower than the Lord's standards. In essence, we will be Saul, a fool, because we don't fear the Lord. We fear the circumstances of this life. But if we trust in the Lord's providence, if we trust and believe in God who reveals himself to to us in his word, if we trust that God is providentially at work in our lives, then our lives are going to reflect that truth, even if it's imperfectly. We will strive to be more righteous by his standards, not our own. We will strive to be more faithful by his standards, not our own. Not because we want him, we want to earn his love or his favor, but because he has already saved us as his children. Because we love him. Because we belong to him. And so, here's the application time. You guys just love this one. We have to ask ourselves this question Are we faithful or are we foolish? Are we faithful or are we foolish? There are times, yes, even us Christians can act foolishly. But we, we have to say, ask ourselves are we like David who trusts, trusted in the providential hand of the Lord? Do I live like that? Do I live a life of righteousness and faithfulness to the Lord because I have inherited eternal life from him already? Or are we like Saul, taking matters into our own hands, living a life by our own standard of righteousness and faithfulness? And then I'll add to this, those moments that we are acting foolishly and God reveals that to us, do we repent? And if we don't repent and turn away from that sin, there is a high danger and we, are, we never were a child of God. If we believe that God is providential in all of history, then guess what? He sent his son to the cross on purpose. He sent his son, Christ, to die upon the cross. He was actively at work in Pontius Pilate and in Herod and in the high priest so that his son would be crucified. That's how our God works. That's not, that's not child abuse. Because Christ went willingly knowing that it was the will of the Father. And I praise God that he did. Because none of us would be here right now. None of us would know Christ. None of us would understand God. None of us would be saved. But through his providential hand, when we repent, we believe, we submit to him, we are saved. Our identity is no longer us. It's him. And it's all for his glory, not for our glory. And so Christ commands us as his disciples. He says, remember what Christ did on the cross was not just so that we could have a ceremony. He did it to save. He did it to save his children. And because he has saved us, we can be righteous and faithful. He says, remember, remember what I did. Remember the debt that I paid for your sake. Remember that you were bought at a price. Remember that you were no longer your own, but you belong to me. Remember who the Lord is 
that he is worthy of our worship, praise, glory, and honor, that he providentially sent his son to save us. Remember, this is not about us. It's about him. And so we praise and glorify him. That's what the communion table is. It's a remembrance time. And this is not a, hopefully this is not like this, oh, this down, like, no, this is, this is, we can't be faithful, so God was faithful for us, and he changes us to make us faithful. That's, that's a happy time. You cannot be righteous. You cannot be faithful, Mark. And so I did it for you, and I'm changing you so that you could be more righteous and more faithful. I have given you eternal life that can never be taken from you, no matter how many times you act foolishly. But don't be a Saul. Don't turn away from me. Don't deny me and instead run to the mediums and to the palm readers and to the stars and every other place but me. Remember who you are. You are no longer Mark. You are mine. You don't belong to this world. You don't belong to yourself. You belong to me. And at the table is where we are reminded as God's people, we are his. And he's the one who works in ways that we can never imagine. In our lives, in our hearts, getting us through hard times, reminding us of his providence, reminding us of his faithfulness, reminding us of his righteousness, and so as we take the communion today, that's, that's the challenge. Um, if you are not a child of God, if you have not repented of your sins, if you have not um, been saved by grace through faith, not by works, this does nothing to save you. But if you have faith in Christ and repent of your sins and you believe, you confess it with your mouth and you are saved, join us. But if you have not done that, then we ask that you refrain. We take this very seriously. One cannot understand the depth of the awesomeness of what Christ did on the cross if you are not saved. He's just some crazy man who died. But to us as Christians, he is our Savior and our only means of eternal life. So when you're ready, go ahead and get in the line. Take your, the cup and the bread. Go ahead and have a seat. And then together as a family, we will take We'll take communion together. So whenever you're ready, go ahead and make your way over.